Good morning, good morning, good morning, Sanctus Church. Welcome to week two in our mini-series as we start 2021 together. Okay, God told our church that the theme for this year and the sort of undergirding theme would be transition between September 2020 and June 2021. Man, did we hear that right. But what's so interesting as I've been reflecting over the last few weeks is how vulnerable we are in times of transition. We as a church are living in this transitional divided moment. This is when you personally, your family, your friendship circle, but we also as a local church are most vulnerable in times of change, in times of upheaval. Even when God is doing the transitioning, we're vulnerable. I don't know if you own Disney Plus, but you know Disney bought out National Geographic. And what came to my mind was those great epic documentaries that National Geographic does. Usually they take place in an African context or actually in a Northern Russian or Northern Canadian context where you have large herds of either antelope or elk and they're moving from one pasture to another or one watering hole to another. And as the herd moves and transitions from one to another, that is when they are attacked. That is when the predators come and they take out the old or the young or those who lag behind. And I want that to be seared in your mind today because whether we realize it or not, we as a local church are literally in transition and most vulnerable now. That's why we're still in the Exodus story, walking with God's people in one of their greatest transitional moments. Now, now remember where we were last week. This is a two-for-one special. It was only two months since the full Exodus moment had happened, the splitting of the Red Sea. And after that freedom moment, that epic moment, waiting 400 years they'd waited for this. The people of God grumbled against Moses, Aaron, and God, not once, not twice, three times. First, they found water in the desert, but it was bitter. It was poisonous. God made it sweet. Then no food, and God sent quail and manna and fed them. And then there was no water again, and then he gave it from a walk, from a rock. God, time and time again, never let his people down. Already a great lesson has emerged. Stop grumbling. Stop turning on God's people and on God's leaders. Uh, don't you understand that inward strife leads to disaster every time? Now, this is where we ended last week. Because remember, the people are like, send us back to Egypt. It's better in Egypt. And what does God do? There's this just beautiful, striking moment in Exodus 16.10. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked towards the desert. And there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. God in love turns his whole family east, away from Egypt, not west, back to Egypt. He makes them face the wilderness, makes them face no promised land on the horizon, only promises in their mouths. He makes them look into the long middle, into the moment of transition, because in transition, in unknown, in uncomfortable, that is where the palpable presence of God was found. But another lesson they're about to learn is the real enemy are outside the camp. And this is going to matter most during transition. So this is exactly what happens. Crisis 4 suddenly takes place. There's an invasion, an attack on the whole Israelite camp by the Amalekites. Now, the Amalekites were a large nomadic tribe that controlled the caravan routes between Egypt and, and Arabia. If you've got a Bible, I'd love you, whether it's physical or on a tablet or phone, turn to Exodus 17, verse 8. The Amalekites came and they attacked the Israelites. Now, the attack was violent, unprovoked, without mercy, and life-threatening. Now, years after this moment, 
we begin to learn that this had been seared into the collective consciousness of the Israelites. And it's recorded in the book of Deuteronomy like this, Deuteronomy 25, 17. Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and you were worn out, they met you on the journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. Weary, worn out, exhausted in a time of transition. Sound like our families? Sound like our friendship circle? Sound like our culture? Sound like our church? Yes. Many of us, when we just read this as dry history, miss the pain of this, the tragedy of this. I mean, these are God's people who were slaves for over 400 years. This is the generation that actually got out. They saw God split the Red Sea. They ate manna and quail. They drank water from a rock. And then the injustice is not only some of them are killed, many of them would be captured and enslaved again. But there's more here than first meets the eye. This large nomadic tribe comes from the same family as the Jews. What? Yep. The Jewish nation is based on a guy named Jacob, who later his name is Israel. He has 12 sons. They become the 12 tribes of Israel. His brother, Jacob's brother, is Esau. Esau's family become the Edomites. And the Edomites intermarry and have a military alliance with the Amalekites. So this ongoing, old, unresolved family battle has larger consequences than they could have ever imagined when they're arguing over birthrights and stew. But this is not just family drama. There's something going on supernatural here too. By the way, the people of God would face the Amalekites again and again. When they crossed the Jordan River, they're going to face them. When, when they turned away from God during the time of the judges, the Amalekites raid them time and time again. King Saul, King David have to face them down. And in the story of Esther, there's a man named Haman who organizes a holocaust of the Jews, a genocide of the Jews. And he, we find out, his roots, his ancestry is Amalekite. But beyond the past and future, Why are they attacking? Well, to understand the attack, you need to look below and above. Below, they want plunder. Below, the Jews are slaves, no standing army. They're in transition. They're weak, easy picking, easy money, easy slaves. Yep. From above, oh, there's a deep, powerful force behind the Amalekites. They're inspired by the gods they worship. And yes, the gods they worship are not true gods, but the forces behind the idea of idolatry, oh, they're real. And they're resisting the Jewish people from getting to the promised land because the kingdom of darkness knows, the gods of the nations know that if they get established there, that leads to someone who will come who will change all things. There is a supernatural attempt to stop. So Moses is now in his fourth major crisis post-Exodus. I can relate. (laughs) Crisis, 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 what to do? Moses says to Joshua, verse 9, choose some men and go out and fight the Amalekites. Slaves are going to have to become warriors. No training, no power, no weapons that we can find in the scriptures or even from history. But they're going to defend themselves. Fear, concern, question about a decision. And Moses commands his right hand Joshua to organize and resist. By the way, First time we see Joshua in the Bible is right here. And that's going to matter by the end of this message. But as we're going to see, Moses says, we're not just going to rely on you, Joshua, or our men that are going to give their lives for this moment. See, this is much larger than self-defense and self-reliance. If we just rely on those two things, we're going to lose. So to not just transition, to survive this next crisis, 
we have to go back to God again. The same God that brought the 10 plagues, the same God that drowned the Egyptian army, the same one that overcame Pharaoh, the greatest military superpower of the day. Either he shows up or we're done. So Joshua, you go into the valley and do your job. But verse nine, part two, tomorrow I, Moses, will stand on top of the hill with my staff, the staff of God in my hands. Now, I shared this, I think a year or two ago when I preached this passage. Tomorrow is not just good strategic thinking. This is not just being a good tactician. This is not just good wisdom and good leadership. No, see, Moses walks with God and talks with God like a friend talks with a friend. Moses already knows what God is going to do tomorrow. How do we know this? Because this is the pattern found during the Exodus moment. When Moses faced Pharaoh, the most powerful man on earth, he walked in already knowing God's will. Permission-based ministry. Prompting that led to planning. He listened, then he acted. Three times God did this. Here's an example in Exodus 8.20. Then God said to Moses, you get up early and confront Pharaoh as he goes to the river and you say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go that they may worship me. And then later in verse 23, I, God, will make a distinction between my people and your people. This sign will happen tomorrow. Tomorrow. Moses says, I know what God's going to do tomorrow. He's going to show up and win this again. But Moses also knew that God chooses human partners. That's why he says, tomorrow I will stand. I will cry out. I will face heaven. I will stand in the gap and I will pray. Time and time again, if you read the existence of Moses, Moses is found facing God, crying out, standing in the middle, wrestling, wondering, struggling. Moses, by the simple statement, is saying, since I know God is about to act, And since I know my role is to stand, here's what I'm going to take. One item. I'm not taking a weapon. I'm not taking a trumpet. I'm not going to give an amazing speech. I'm not even going to inspire the troops with my presence as Moses. I'm not going to be near them. I'm just going to take the staff in my hand. Now, do you remember the very first time that God took that normal, no power, No supernatural ability, obvious, boring shepherd staff and did something with it. Moses is encountering God for the first time at the burning bush where God says, I am that I am. And he says, you need to go set my people free. And Moses responds, no way. And in fear, and you read this in Exodus 4.1, we'll wonder if they don't believe me or they don't listen to me or wonder if they say, God didn't appear to you. And God said to him, what's in your hand? Well, yeah, I got a shepherd staff. The Lord said, throw it, on, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground. It became a snake. He ran away. I would too. Then God said, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. Moses did it. I'm not sure if I would. <laughs> so Moses reached out and took it, and the snake turned back into a staff into his hands. This, said the Lord, is so they may believe the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. So Moses goes, confronts Pharaoh with this very staff turns into a serpent. Pharaoh laughs and says, please. He calls in his sorcerers who have real demonic power. They throw their rods down. They become snakes, but Moses' snake eats their snakes. God overcomes the the gods of Egypt on their own turf. This same staff brings multiple plagues, not all of them, but multiple plagues on, on the nation of Egypt. It turns the Nile to blood. It's the one that splits the Red Sea. Later, this is used to get water from a rock. This is God's given power. In other words, here's what what Moses says. All I've got in my hand 
is power that's beyond me. I'm just going to take the anointing God has given me and stand. So the next day the battle begins. Blood, sweat, death, a nation, its fate hangs in the balance. And as organized chaos is happening below, the battle above also begins. Joshua, verse 10, fought the Amalekites and Mo- as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Ur went on to the top of the hill. So you've got three leaders now go to the top of the mountain. The battle has to be one up top and down below. There must be action in the bottom and prayer up top. Joshua still had to go into the valley to battle. You just can't pray. You have to battle. It's like the story of Jericho later in the promised land. Yes, God's going to literally make the walls fall over, but you still have to walk around for seven days and do what I say. Do what I say. Jesus turns water into wine, but the servants still had to bring the jugs of water. Prayer covers and supports and undergirds the God-given action. Well, verse 11. As long as Moses held up his hand, the Israelites were winning. And whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites, they were winning. Now, early Jewish scholars and the rabbinic schools and later the church fathers and the reformers all see this as an act of prayer and intercession. As long as Moses prayed and stood with God and called down the power of God from heaven, Israel wins. The battle was won upstairs and downstairs. But when prayer falters, listen everyone, (laughs) the battle falters. When prayer stops, self-sufficiency is all you got, you're all you got, and you lose. Here before us is one of the greatest examples of standing in the gap, intercession. Intercession is an act of prayer where you place the needs of other people in front of God, and you wrestle with God and you stay with God until an answer is given. Abraham wrestled over the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah and righteous people multiple times. One of the greatest examples is in 1 Kings 18 with Elijah. Fire from heaven already came down. The prophets of Baal already struck down. The people of God who are described in a non-revival state, not caring about God, hands folded, half-worshipping Baal, now have fallen in front of God and are worshipping Him. It's an amazing moment. But it says also that there has not been rain in that area geographically for three and a half years. There's famine everywhere. So after this epic God encounter moment, this revival-like moment, the physical presence of God is back again. He goes up in a mountain and he prays not once, not twice, seven times. And in the original Hebrew, it says he was bent over. His head was between his knees because he was so travailing is the old word, crying out to God for rain. And it came. We see Jesus praying like this too in the garden over the future of the human race. To stand in the gap is not option. It's necessary. And yet, we're still weak. We're still human. We still need help. Think about this. Moses is over 80 years old by this point. He's standing on top of a hill, raising his hands in the heat of the sun. His whole nation is at risk below. Dirt, dust, old, weak, tired. His body's giving out. Fatigue took its toll. And if he gave in, his people would die. Verse 12, when Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. Then Aaron and Ur held up his hands, one on one side, one on the other, and his hands remained steady until sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. The battle is won upstairs and downstairs. And as they're literally cleaning up bodies weeping over their dead and dealing with the chaos of that, God personally comes close to Moses and gives him another assignment 
on the same day. But this act is incredibly important. Verse 14. Write this on a scroll. is something to be remembered. And make sure that Joshua, the next leader, he hears it. Because I will completely blot out the name of the Amalekites from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. Moses, after a whole day of praying, over 80 years old, begins to pile stones day after day, sorry, moment after moment. He's building an altar post-crisis, and there's no sense anyone else is even present. And why is this amazing, tired, exhausted old leader piling stones in a place where nothing would even be sacrificed? Well, this is what we call an Ebenezer a stone of remembrance, stones of hope and help. We will physically record and set up a place to remember what is given, what God has done, and we will record it when our mind is fresh and we've just seen the act of God. So we do not fall prey to the lie that we do this or or we do not forget to look to God and we turn to other gods and we set up these, these stones also so we'll teach our children and their children and their children. They can encounter the same God we have. And then a new name of God is introduced. The Lord is my banner. Now, uh, that's like a modern flag. The Lord is our warrior, our victory. Now, okay, <laughs> let's make the needed connection between, between why this historic true event was shadow and preparation for everything we take for granted as Christians, if you are one. The greatest enemy of the human family, there's three, Sin, you can't say no to it. Death, it's guaranteed you're going to die. And everyone is positionally owned by Satan. And in love, God stepped into that Egypt and rescued us. And not only in love, rescued and redeemed us from Egypt, but keeps on protecting us as the enemy keeps coming back again and again to reintroduce slavery and death. Jesus fulfills this story on a global scale. See, here's the amazing thing. Jesus is the better intercessor. Moses stood on a hill between two others and the battle was won and decided there. Do you see it, Sanctus? Jesus, the better Moses and the better intercessor would later stretch out his hands on another hill between two criminals on Good Friday and there he would overcome all evil and save his people so we never have to go back to Egypt again. You should be saying amen somewhere in some house. And not only is Jesus the better intercessor, Uh, the better Moses, in in the sense that he stands there, he continues to stand in the presence of God 24 hours a day for us right now. He never stops standing on the hill for us. That's why Paul would later say in uh, in Romans 8.33, who's going to bring any charge against those whom God has called and chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and is interceding for us. See, Jesus is the better Moses and the better intercessor, but it's even more amazing. Jesus is not just above, on the hill, and in the heavens. Jesus is also down in the valley, face to face with the enemy of our souls. Remember Joshua, who fights in the valley. Well, Joshua in Greek is the name Jesus. Jesus is the better Joshua. Jesus is the better warrior. That's why it says in 1 John 3, 8, the reason why the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. 
As I've preached before, in that one act, at the crux of history, stands the cross of Christ, where Jesus deals with all the barriers between each other, ourselves, and God. He pardons us, liberates us, fills in the gap for us, steps in for us, stands for us, prays for us, and ransom, and is the ransom for us. He's the better Joshua. He overcomes all evil. There he, he drove out the prince of the world. That is why our God is called the Lord is my banner. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Blessed Trinity, the God of Israel in the church is our forever banner. Okay, now back. Back to us at the beginning of 2021 as a local church found in the extended Greater Toronto Area, the GTA. What is the same God that met with Moses saying to us, not only in what we're learning or teaching, what is he literally speaking into our situation? Well, number one, we are vulnerable as a church because of so much change. Cultural change, economic change, technology change, racial change, medical debate. We are vulnerable. But as I was praying and listening and also talking with people across our church, it suddenly struck me, I think genuinely the Lord showed me, that we are now actually already under attack supernaturally by the Amalekites. And this is when I'd love everyone to take out a notepad or get your notes out in your, uh, uh, in your computer or laptop or your iPad, because I want you to write this down. We are under attack in six areas, three ways, three locations, three ways, three locations. In this moment of great transition, as we're walking from one watering hole to another, as we're in transition in our vision, as we're moving forward, we are literally, as a local church, under spiritual attack now. First area, distraction. Distraction. Multiple people are being picked off by the evil one during this COVID moment. It's not worth staying with Sanctus. Other churches are open. Or or actually, here's another thing. 20 to 25% of Christians just stopped going to church since COVID. They just stopped going. Now, is it ever wrong to leave Sanctus? No, no, of course not. Multiple times God reassigns people or we move. People die. People get married. Like, that's not what I'm talking about. But my sense is that during this really difficult time, the evil one is using the real environment we're going through and distracting us from his calling to commit to this local church. He's picking key people off. Holy Spirit, show the people who they are. Second, disbelief. I don't think the vision is true or it's taking too long. Disbelief. The slow eroding of trust. The third one is distrust. I don't trust the leadership. I don't trust my fellow Christians in this season. I can't believe what they're writing online. See, distraction, disbelief, distrust. This is how the enemy's eroding our unity. These are the three ways that he's working right now. But it's not just three ways. Let me talk about the three locations where the battle is heating up. I was praying for our whole church just before Christmas in a devotional moment. And I almost had a vision of our church, not like I was in a trance like Peter, just a vision of our church almost from heaven's view geographically. And I actually saw a real attack on our church on three fronts in three locations. And I literally saw spiritual darkness in these three locations. The first one was actually what's already been established. So I saw in my mind the Ajax site, the Pickering site, the Bowmanville site, the Port Perry site, and and it was like there was an attempt to destroy what already is. 
to halt, to tear down the elders, the staff, money. The goal was not utter destruction. It was sort of like as we're living in this COVID moment and then walking out, we would limp out as a church and over the long haul just break down. And, and, and I can't tell you specifically why, but this felt strongest in Bowmanville. So if you're in Bowmanville, lean in. This was this attempt to stop what God had already established. That's front one. Then front two actually was the six locations we're called to next. Like I shared last week, beyond even this virtual thing that we're never stopping, thank God for that, we're still called to the Port Hope Coburg area and downtown Toronto and lower Oakville and North York and the Mark and Stouffville border and the Lindsay Peterborough. Like, remember, as I've taught again and again and preached and we believe, this is not about us being bigger or our reputation or our size. This is a God-given assignment and the enemy wants to stop us from building missional centers. As our church expands out, one of many churches, but as our church expands out, the evil one's already present in those locations, ready to stop and and prevent. They don't want our presence to bring the presence of Jesus alongside other churches. But then the third thing sort of even became more acute to me. There was opposition on a higher level when it comes to our growing influence with other churches. Now, let me say this again, not because I'm fear-mongering. We just got to get this. One in 10 churches in Canada are closing, probably by Easter. And I do not think that Sanctus Church, we are not the Savior Church. We are not the best church in the country. We don't have all the answers. Man, do we have so many questions. And, and listen, it's not greener grass here. It's just more grass. We got lots of problems here. But God has and is equipping us to continue to help and support and encourage and equip other churches. And you just, you might not know this. Beyond our local and global influence to our partners and, and people getting baptized. I mean, we've mentored, I think it's over 80 churches in releasing prayer now. In the last, I think, six months, three churches have actually taken our spiritual gifts teaching, convergent stuff, and they've used it on Sunday mornings. One church, I think, is starting literally this week. And they're seeing renewal and revival breakout as in these churches, people are discovering their spiritual gifts. Uh, we continually train multiple other churches in Alpha. We've launched other churches with freedom session. We're still helping others build worship. And then the peer-to-peer influence from our staff and other key volunteers is huge. And the kingdom of darkness wants to abort this, kill this. They want to stop this. So there are six locations or six areas we're under attack. And and I want you to really lean in and hear this because this matters because we've got distraction. And are you distracted We've got disbelief, we've got distrust, and then we've got the attempt to destroy what God has already established, to stop us before we go to the new locations, and also stop our ongoing influence. So what do we do? Well, number one, it starts with you. (laughs) It starts with you and then us. We have to stand in the gap for our church. And if you've written those six areas down, I'm asking the whole church this week to pray over each one of those areas and ask God to break the power of whatever the kingdom of darkness wants to do. And remember, Moses, Aaron, and Ur together prayed. It's a community thing. You make the decision and you pray in community. So whether you pray in connect groups or actually you just know that we're all praying this week and beyond this week, we need to pray, God, break disbelief, break this lack of trust, build unity in our church. And not only that, we pray that God, our Father, and Lord Jesus Christ, you'd clear a path. 
We need to stand in the gap. Remember what we've learned. Even though we're stepping out like Joshua, Moses still has to be up on the hill praying. We need God's intervention in what exists and what is going to exist for us to do our God-given task. And the kingdom of darkness during this time of transition as we're walking in the long middle wants to take us out personally and as a whole church. And we have to ask God to say no. Here's the other thing that really struck me uh, during um, this, this moment. I was struck again by how God took a normal nothing staff and it brought water from a rock. It split the Red Sea. It overcame the demonic gods of Egypt. All of us are just here today and gone tomorrow. We're just people. But as I was praying about this message, what struck me, deeper than struck me, what I genuinely felt constrained and prompted, to use our language, to share with you, is that there is a lot of normal stuff in our hands. Not even, I'm not talking about spiritual gifts. It could be a social media platform. It could be a talent you have. It could be a job you have, a hobby. I'm And literally God wants to take it and make that normal, unsupernatural thing profoundly supernatural for his kingdom. And and so I can't tell you anything else other than when I was praying about this sermon, I was called to lead our church in prayer for protection and freedom, and then to ask the Holy Spirit to literally point out in people's minds and hearts some of the natural things in life, job, family, relationships, talents, property, I don't know, where the Lord was going to start saying to people, I want you to use this for this reason and this for this reason. And you think this is irrelevant, but actually it's going to do this. And just see God use this natural thing to become supernatural. So could we pray right across our church right now? God, thank you so much that you are the sustainer. And we at Sanctus Church claim the name of God. God is our banner over our church right now. You are our great warrior and our victory. And we pray right now in the name of Jesus, who sits at the right hand, who's praying for us, who's overcome all evil, all evils underneath his feet, that you would guard what you've already established. And you'd begin to undo disunity and lack of trust and and disbelief and distraction. That you would tell people where they're assigned and they would stay. That people would return. But God, as the evil is trying to pick people off, would you go out as the good shepherd and stop that? We all pray this in Jesus' name. We pray that out of, during this COVID moment and then out of this COVID moment, as we emerge out of it, that Ajax, Pickering, and, and, and Port Perry, and Bowmanville would be stronger, not weaker, in Jesus' name. And we pray into the six new locations that you're sending us and also this now this virtual location that actually you clear paths. God, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, clear paths so more people can hear the good news of Jesus that you would establish sanctus because you've ordained it. And nothing from the kingdom of darkness or human can stop it. We pray for the buildings and the places and the environments and the staff and the volunteer, all of it in Jesus' name. And lastly, we also pray that we will continue in a humble posture to help other churches during this spiraling moment in Canada of the church, that we would be one church of many that brings life to some, and we would see a change, a, a, a total change in the church trajectory in our country. God, we acknowledge you're our sustainer. Guard us during this moment as you taught us in the Lord's Prayer. Lead us out of temptation. Lead us, and, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is what we pray over our church. This is what we pray over our families. This is what we pray over our friendship circle. This is what we pray. 
And now establish us to prepare to move forward. We ask this in Jesus' name. And we all said together, amen. Thanks for hanging out with us. Look forward to hanging out with you next week as we begin another mini-series on what this church is about. And then right after that one, we're going to get to Philemon, which is going to be real interesting for our church. Cannot wait to see you next week as we talk about basically the foundation of this church. See you next week.